Okay, we've got two big reads this morning. So the first one's Psalm 103. And then after that will be Matthew 18. Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his way to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbour his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay, repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed, he remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass, they flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him, and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his, his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, my soul. And then we turn to uh, Matthew 18, starting at uh, verse 15 to 35. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. 
He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Thanks, Janine. Well, uh, good morning. Uh, six to eight are going to head out for uh, their Bible study now. Please keep uh, that part of God's word open for Matthew 18. Whoops. Hopefully my notes are going to stay put. There we go. Let me uh, lead us in prayer again as we uh, come to re- reflect on God's word. Father God, we, we thank you and praise you as the God who speaks. We thank you that you, you speak to us in your word. We ask that you would... Give us hearts ready to, to tremble at your word, to take it to heart and to live by your word. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, put your hand up if you like conflict. You're, you're ready to put your hand up there, weren't you? you know? um, or maybe I should rather say if you like being involved in conflict, I suspect there may be people who do actually like watching conflict whether that takes you know the form of on the sporting field or maybe in the tv drama or whatever it is but i would say that um the lack of hands is a truthful indication of the reality that very few of us actually like being involved in interpersonal conflicts and yet you'd have to say conflict is a part of life uh, we, we, we find ourselves involved in in various conflicts that's true of of all people it's true of Christian people, of, the, of those who follow Jesus. We, we are involved in conflict. And sometimes, perhaps often, sin is involved. We sin against others. Others sin against us. We, we fail to do what is right in God's eyes. So what do we do? What do we do when a fellow Christian brother or sister fails? When they sin against us? Jesus has a lot to teach us on, uh, on this in today's passage. Uh, he doesn't say everything that could be said on the topic, but there is much here that we, that we need to listen to. But before we look at what Jesus says, perhaps we should consider some of the, if we can put it this way, the failed ways that we uh, respond to the fail, failure of others. I think a common failure can be to, to talk not to the person, but about the person. So if your brother or sister sins against you, go and point out their faults to a bunch of your sympathetic friends so that they can help, help them to understand what a terrible thing it was that your brother or sister did. No, that's not right, is it? That's not what Jesus says. Or maybe, as sometimes happens, if your brother or sister sins, go and tell the minister so that he can be triangulated into having a chat with them about what they did to you. No, that's not so good. Or worse still, talk to your sympathetic friends and then go to the minister and say, everyone is saying that so-and-so shouldn't do that, so please go and have a chat to them. Not good. 
Now, I should just give a qualifier here. Sometimes talking to someone else, if it's done appropriately, can sometimes be, be helpful as in, in a way of, of getting advice, if, the, if that's the, the, the purpose of it, is to get advice or to seek wisdom, get perspective on things, to, to think about, well, how can I, what's the best way to deal with that? Sometimes that's helpful. But no, only speaking about your brother or sister rather than to your brother or sister, that's a failed way of dealing with failure. Second failure can be to, well, to not say anything, to just kind of let things slide. Now, depending on the nature of it, there, there can be a time to, to, to let things slide. Uh, perhaps the other person already realises what they did and, and, and actually what they need from you is, is forgiveness and grace rather than having their faults kind of itemised for them. So there can be a place for, for letting things slide. But to take the position of, of never saying anything can end up just being permissive, saying, in effect, it, it, it's fine to sin. It doesn't matter. If the youth group leader is sleeping with his girlfriend and no one says anything, everyone is, in effect, saying it's not sin, even though the Bible says clearly that sexual relationships outside of marriage are sin. But not, by not saying anything we would be saying either it's not sin or it's okay to sin. It doesn't matter, which is wrong and, it's, and terribly unhelpful for them. The other problem with not saying anything is that it can kind of lead to what I might describe as the volcano effect, where you, you say nothing and everything is kind of kept underground with pressure slowly building until eventually something cracks the surface and the volcano explodes and you let rip and tell them how, what a terrible, horrible person that they are. Being permissive, not saying anything, is not the way to go. But actually the opposite can be equally unhelpful. To be constantly on the lookout for the sins of others so that you can jump on it and say, aha, look what you did. A kind of moralistic spot it and stop it campaign. That's miles away from what Jesus teaches here. You know, like the parent who is constantly finding fault in their children. Or the spouse who's watching constantly to get ammunition for the next round of conflict. Like the, the water polo player who pushes themselves up high in the water by pushing others down below the water. There's many ways that we can fail to deal well with failure, uh, including talking about someone rather than to someone being permissive, not saying anything, or being condemning and highlighting every fault. And friends, maybe it's just it's helpful before we dive into listening to what Jesus says, just to recognise that, well, we're all probably guilty of, of all of those things at various times. Just humbly recognise that, put ourselves on the same page, and then come to God's word, humbly seeking to listen to him and to, to do things his way. Because in contrast to, to our failed ways of dealing with failure, Jesus gives here uh, four steps to dealing with the sin of a brother or sister. And firstly, notice there that it is talking about a brother or sister in Christ, a fellow Christian. That's what's on view here for Jesus. And so Jesus says, verse 15, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. 
Now, depending which uh, English translation you have, it might say, if your brother or sister sins against you. Uh, the ESV has, has that. Um, in either, either case, whether it includes those words against you, uh, your Bible will have a little footnote there pointing out the variation. So which is it? Is it if they sin or if they sin against you? Uh, I'd say it's a lion ball to work out whether Matthew's original gospel included against you and scribes have, have dropped it out for some reason or whether it didn't include against you and scribes have included it for some reason. It, it only makes a subtle difference and actually what Jesus says makes sense either way. Um, I do think it's interesting that uh, in, the, in Peter's follow-up question in verse 21, he, he includes the words against me. So he has in mind a situation where a brother or sister sins against him. Perhaps that kind of tips us towards thinking, um, to including it in verse 15. At any rate, uh, step one, your brother or sister sins or sins against you. Go and point out their fault just between the two of you. Or as the ESV translation says, between you and him alone. Now, that's very helpful because sometimes when we do that, we discover that actually it wasn't a matter of sin. There was a miscommunication, a misunderstanding, and talking about it, having a conversation just between the two of you can help sort of clear that that up and you gain a better perspective on things. But if it does turn out to be a matter of sin, notice the goal. The goal of speaking to them. It's not to condemn them. It's not to get one up on them. It's not to seek revenge. It's not even to seek justice. You know, you did this and so there needs to be consequences. Justice is a good and right thing. But that's not what Jesus is saying is is the goal, the motivation here. The goal is to, to win them over. Or as the ESV puts it more literally, to gain your brother. To, to, to bring realisation for them, repentance, restoration, reconciliation. So our motivation in this, well, it ought not to be about us, our rights, our, our grievances, our, our vindication. No, it's, it's actually about them and their godliness. Our desire to, to love them by helping them to, to not continue in unrepentant sin. We want to gain our brother or sister back. It's like what Paul says in, um, in Galatians 6, it'll come up on the screen, uh, verses 1 to 3. He says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are nothing, they deceive themselves. Now, there's a lot in these few verses, and this isn't a sermon on Galatians 6, but just notice there, the goal is to restore. To restore a brother or sister who's caught in sin, and to do it gently, and with a humility that that watches ourselves to guard against our own sin. So step one, we go to our brother or sister, just the two of you, and seek to win them back. But if they won't listen, well, step two, take one or two others along. Now, importantly, notice why we're to do this. This is not a case of, you know, grabbing your besties who tend to, you know, agree with you and and go in force as some kind of power move. The one or two others are, notice, witnesses. Now, perhaps they're additional witnesses to the sin, 
And so it's not just your word against theirs, or perhaps they're, they're witnesses to the conversation between the two of you. Either way, witnesses are, witnesses are called in because there's opposition, there's dispute. You only have witnesses when there's something that's disputed and you're trying to get to the truth. So hopefully if, if your brother or sister can see that, well, this is not just, it's not just you who's concerned about this issue or concerned for them, but others are equally concerned for them. Hopefully they'll, they'll listen and respond rightly. But verse 17, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. Now, what does that look like? How do you do that? Uh, is it with or without their consent? Uh, how do you do that in a modern Australian context? And how does that, where does that fit with defamation laws? This is tricky. But leaving aside our modern context for a minute notice what jesus does and doesn't say here he's not talking about kicking someone out of the church or excommunicating them Um, there are other passages in the scriptures that speak uh, along those lines like 1 corinthians 5 and uh, romans 16 verse 17 titus 3 10 to 11 but i don't think matthew 18 is talking about kicking people out of the church if they refuse to listen to you, just the two of you, and they refuse to listen to one or two other witnesses, then Jesus says, tell it to the church with the hope that they will listen to the church. The motive is not to expel them from the church or even to to warn the church of them and their sin as appropriate and necessary as that may be in some circumstances. No, the motive is still to have them listen, to win them over, to see them repentant and restored as a brother or sister. So this telling to the church, whatever that may look like, and perhaps we we can think and discuss later what that might might mean. The goal of that is in order to to, to strengthen and widen the witness so that hopefully they'll wake up to themselves, realise that, well, this is not just the opinions of two or three people against theirs. They face a choice of refusing to listen to the church and continuing in their way or repenting and being restored. Now, if they refuse to listen, even to the church, what then? Expel them? Condemn them? Have nothing to do with them? No. Jesus doesn't say that, does he? Notice what he says. He says, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Or the ESV puts it, let him be to you. And the you there is singular. It's not talking about the church. Their response, it's, it's what, what, what's your response? Let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, Jesus is speaking to Jews at this point, and, and for a Jew to regard someone as like a, a Gentile or a tax collector is to regard them as, as an outsider. Uh, let your relationship with them be that of to an outsider. I think what Jesus is saying is you've gone to them as a brother or sister. You've sought to gain them back as a brother or sister in Christ. But if they continue to refuse to listen, despite all your efforts, well, you, you have done what you can. Let it go. Your commitment to them as a brother or sister to, to do what you can to see them one over, that, that actually has limits. And there can come a time where there is nothing more to do other than to relate to them as you would a pagan or a tax collector, which is not to write them off and ignore them, I mean, think about how Jesus related to tax collectors. 
What did he do? He loved them. He called them to himself. He, he called them to repent, but he loved them. And Jesus taught us to how we to treat our enemies. We're to pray for our enemies. We're to pray for them that they would be saved. So I think to, to let them be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector means we'll treat them as you would treat anyone who hasn't yet come to repentance. Continue to, to bring the gospel to bear in, in your own life and in the lives of those around you. So Jesus lays out um, four steps to dealing with the sin of a brother or sister in Christ. But, you know, I think calling it four steps, four steps is perhaps unhelpful. Because it makes it sound kind of neat and simple, doesn't it? And in practice, it's rarely neat or simple or clear. It, it can be messy. It can require great wisdom, great humility and grace to, to navigate this. For example, perhaps you speak to someone and, they, and seemingly win them over. They're repentant. But then the next week they do the same thing again. Well, does that mean, well, they obviously didn't listen, so it's time for step two. Or, or does it just mean that actually, like you, they're, they're a sinner who's still struggling with that particular sin and, and what they need from you is not kind of escalating judgment, but they need your grace and humility and, and forgiveness. I think the important thing in, in all of this is, and the thing that will actually help us to, to navigate the complexity and the messiness of it, is to, to grasp the overarching motive and that is that it must be one of, of love for our brother or sister. Love that, that wants to see them not caught up in unrepentant sin, but see them restored, see them forgiven, see them continuing with us as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. That's our motive. It's, it, as I said before, it's, it's about them and their godliness, not about you and your grievance. Now, this really matters. Um, so much so... Because it, it has actually eternal consequences, which I think is the point of the, the next slightly strange to our ears thing that Jesus says. I'm just going to grab some water. Notice what Jesus says. He says, truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. What we do on earth has a heavenly, eternal effect. As we deal with our brother or sister who sinned against us, as we declare to them the, the judgment of God, binding them in God's judgment and saying what you, what you did was wrong, as we declare to them the mercy of God, loosing them by God's mercy, as we do that, well, so God in heaven is bringing judgment and bringing mercy upon them. See, it's in the work of the, the declaration of the gospel that heaven and earth interact. Our Father in heaven is at, at work through such binding and loosing ministry of his people. Because where two or three gather in his name, there is, there he is, is he with them. Heaven has come to earth in that sense. So this love-motivated, restorative-directed ministry of the gospel of Jesus in the lives of his people, he is with us in this, working through us to, to bring about the kingdom of heaven. That is a pretty big deal. 
So our love for our brother or sister who sins against us, this motivates us to, to speak to them. Hopefully it leads them to, to, to listen, to repent, to seek our forgiveness. So the question then is, will we forgive them? What if it's not the first time it's happened? What if it's not the second time it's happened? Or the third or the, or the fifth time? I think Peter has this same thought. He questions Jesus, verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Um, up to seven times? Now, I reckon Peter was probably trying to be generous here. Um, he's, not, he's not just talking about second chances or third chances or fifth chances. I think he's thinking, let's be generous. Go, let's go all out and suggest seven times. Poor Peter, Jesus answers, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Or it could be um, 70 times seven, with quick math, 490 times. Uh, but I think Jesus is not saying, look, keep counting until you get to 77. He's saying, don't count. It's not about keeping score, you know, tallying up infringements as, as if it's kind of, well, forgive, forgive forgive but then when you get to seven next time it's not forgive it's condemn he says no we're not to be people of condemnation we're to be people of abundant forgiveness excessive forgiveness you could say um, and jesus uses this number 77 i, I think it's uh, likely a reference to lamech from uh, genesis 4 um, you have a read of genesis 4 later lamech he's a nasty piece of work and uh, he boasted to his wives, he said, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Lamech was a man of vengeance. I mean, someone wounded him and he killed them. It's excessive vengeance, avenging 77 times. And I think Jesus is saying, don't be like Lamech with excessive vengeance. Be like Jesus with excessive forgiveness. Jesus, who, well, he responded to the sin of the world, not with judgment, but with mercy, with, with forgiveness that took him to the cross to die so that we might be forgiven. We, his enemies, could be forgiven. Jesus calls us to, to forgive much, just as we've been forgiven much. And that's the point of this, this brilliant parable that Jesus tells of the, of the king and his servants the challenge of preaching on this parable is the, the parable just tells itself and you can't in the sense if you haven't got it from hearing it what, what can i add by preaching on it but let me just draw out a few things um, the king is is bringing judgment he's settling his accounts one of the servants owed him verse 24 says ten thousand bags of gold now just picture that that's a lot of that, that's a lot of bags of gold right um, literally it's it's ten thousand talents now, a talent, uh, if you've got a footnote and you've got a footnote in your Bible, if you can read it, the very small print says that a talent is about 20 years of a day laborer's wages. One talent, 20 years' wages. So this servant owed 10,000 talents. That's 200,000 years' wages. Jesus' point is this is an impossibly large debt. I mean, he, Jesus could have said he owed a gazillion billion dollars. Verse 25, since he was 
not able to pay, obviously. The master ordered that he and his wife and his children, all that he had be sold to repay the debt. So the master would recoup something towards the debt. But at this, verse 26, at this the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged. I'll pay back everything. Now notice that the servant asked for patience for time to, to, to try to pay back this impossibly large debt. He, he asked for patience, but instead the master gave him mercy, forgiveness. Verse 27, the, the servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt and let him go, literally forgave him the debt, the same word in the original, and released him. But this forgiven servant then went out verse 28 but when the servant went out he he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins 100 silver coins uh, the footnote again says a uh, 100 denarii a denarii was one day's wage so he owed a hundred days wages which is tiny in comparison to 200,000 years wages he grabbed his fellow servant began to choke him pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. Notice he says almost exactly the same thing that the first servant said to the king. He, he too asks for patience so that he can repay the debt of 100 days wages. But verse 30, he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. In other words, never, forever. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Now the point is simple but profound. If we are forgiven servants of the King, if our heavenly Father has mercifully forgiven us the enormous debt that we have due to our sin which would be impossible for us to, to somehow deal with ourselves. If we've been forgiven such an immensely, impossibly large amount by God, how can we stand in condemnation over our brother or sister in Christ and, and withhold our forgiveness? If we're people of forgiveness by God's mercy, then we must be people of forgiveness who show mercy to others. Or turn it the other way around. If we refuse to forgive others, then, well, that's a sign that we, like the first servant, haven't rightly received forgiveness ourselves. We haven't understood it. We haven't embraced it. Perhaps we're blind to the impossibly large debt that we've been forgiven. Jesus says you must forgive your brother or sister from your heart or God will not extend his forgiveness to you. Now, on this topic of forgiveness, a lot more can and needs to be said. 
Sometimes forgiveness is, sometimes it's quick and easy. And sometimes it's very slow and difficult. Sometimes it, it can take time to, to feel the effect of forgiveness. It, it can be some time after the, the decision to forgive, the, the, the decision to release the other person from their debt to you. The, the decision to head in, in the direction of forgiveness. Also, forgiveness doesn't mean there aren't still consequences in this world for, for sin. Forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean full restoration or, of relationship. And that will depend on, on various things, including the other person's recognition of their sin, their willingness to repent and, and to seek to change. Forgiveness can be tricky. But as people who, who have been forgiven much by our gracious Heavenly Father... We must strive to be people whose who's knee-jerk response, whose who's from-the-heart response is one of forgiveness towards others in response to God's forgiveness towards us. What are the implications of God's word to us? For some of us, maybe many of us, this, this could be a, a live one. Uh, maybe someone sinned against you. Maybe... Someone has come to you to say that you've sinned against them. Maybe there's a bit of both going on. How will you respond? My prayer is that, that it will be with gentleness, humility, wisdom, repentance, forgiveness, and a desire to pursue restoration. That we would respond with that abundant, excessive 77-fold love and forgiveness that reflects God's abundant excessive 77-fold love and forgiveness of us. How about a lead us in prayer that God would help us to do that? Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you are the God of grace and mercy. We thank and praise you that in the Lord Jesus that he has died and risen again for us, that we would be forgiven. We thank you that that he didn't, Jesus didn't come into this world to condemn the world, but to save the world. And we know that we deserve your condemnation, and yet you have mercy on us. Father, we are sorry that we sin against you and our brothers and sisters. We are sorry for our, our failings, and pray that by your Spirit you would lead us to repent, to apologise, to seek to be reconciled. Father, you know the hurts that we suffer from other people, using us, abusing us, not treating us properly. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would give us that, that same generosity, that same graciousness, that same mercy and forgiveness that you have. That our, our concern would be for our enemy's salvation and not for our own feelings. We pray that we may speak to them for their benefit that we may bring witnesses and the church to them for their benefit and not for ours. We pray that you would give us grace and wisdom to know how to do this. Father, we pray too for your spirit to take away from us those hurts that can't be resolved in this world, knowing that you are in control and that all things will come to you and be dealt with by you properly in due time. So, Father, we pray for your help. We beg for your mercy 
that there may be no conflicts amongst us. But when there are, Father, we pray that you would enable us to do as our Lord Jesus taught us, that we might bring honour and glory to him, even in our conflict. And we ask it in his name. Amen.